Welcome to the Benzo Free Podcast, your home for an honest, straightforward, and personal discussion about anti-anxiety drugs, their effects, and how to deal with dependence and withdrawal. Whether you have taken benzodiazepines, Z drugs, or any other tranquilizers, know someone who has, or you just want help dealing with chronic anxiety and insomnia, this is your podcast. I'm your host, D.E. Foster, author of the book, Benzo Free, The World of Anti-Anxiety Drugs and the Reality of Withdrawal. I'm so glad you joined us today. Please stick around and let me bend your ear for a few minutes. It just might feel a little better on the other side. Hello there, this is Dee, and welcome to episode 42 of the Benzo Free Podcast. Hey, it's just me. <laughs> I'm standing in front of my microphone here, staring at these long strips of fabric that my wife has washed and hung up on a rope in front of my desk. Don't ask. <laughs> I'm recording this on Monday, and we're between snowstorms here in the front range of Colorado. Yesterday we had about five inches of snow, and tomorrow we're supposed to get another six or seven. I realize that this may be a depressing type of thing for some of you, but for me, it really warms my heart. I know it means I'm a bit weird, but come on, you kind of knew that by now, didn't you? I'm going to keep our introduction short today since we have a lot to cover in our feature, but I do want to mention two quick things before we move on. First, as I mentioned before, and thanks to those who have already responded, but I'm heading out next week for my road trip to Florida and wandering along some mid-Atlantic states and the southeast states and maybe even northern states on the way back. Who knows? So if by chance you would like to meet up or even record something for the podcast or not and just say hi, let me know and we'll see if we can make our schedules fit together. Our plans are pretty loose on the way home, so I can't say yet when and where I will be places, but my wife and I will start our drive back, I think, on Sunday, the 17th of November, and hope to catch up with a few of you throughout that week as we work our way back to Colorado. And the second thing today is I want to ask you a favor today. It's not a big favor. You don't have to quickly turn off the podcast or anything and <laughs> think I'm asking something huge of you. This is a small favor. There are hundreds of unsung heroes out there in the Benzo community who are helping others. I received some emails from some of them over the last several months, and it reminds me of the amazing work so many others are doing. Some of these are on the discussion boards or even administering the discussion boards like Benzo Buddies and so many others. Others are working with some other organizations like BIC or WBAT or the Alliance or are all these other great places. Or others are IMing or tweeting or texting with friends they've met online and forming in-person or virtual support groups to help out each other. And others are helping me with Benzo Free by doing research or helping me organize or even starting to help me with some blog articles. I host a podcast with several hundred downloads a week. And many of you have written to me to tell me what the podcast has meant to you. And it is wonderful. I love getting those. Please, I hope it never stops. But so many others never get any gratitude for all the help they provide, and they deserve it. 
They're the ones doing the real work in the trenches one person at a time. So my favor is this. This week, reach out and say thank you. Just say thank you to those who have helped you along the way. Many of them have a thankless job and, unlike me, don't get the feedback. And they need to. Just say thanks. Trust me. It goes a long, long way. Today we're going to have almost our normal format. We will have our introduction, mailbag, benzo story, and feature. But the only change here is our mailbag is going to be pushed to the end of our feature because our mailbag will be dedicated to tapering today. And I thought it would be great to have that as a Q&A on the end of our feature, so that each of the questions and comments we're covering are about tapering. Today our feature, just like I mentioned, is how to taper from benzos. This is part two of our two-part series on tapering. Part one was released last week. Go check that out if you haven't listened to it yet. This is an in-depth look at the process of tapering from long-term benzo use. There are eight parts of this series, and we're going to cover the last four parts today. And before I move on, I do want to mention, of course, that we need feedback, questions, comments, stories, suggestions, corrections, additions. This is your podcast, and the more content I can share from you, the more benzo-free becomes the community it was designed to be. So please, tell us what you think. Visit our feedback form at benzofree.org feedback or email us at podcast at benzofree.org. Or comment directly on the podcast blog itself for others to see. And don't forget to sign up for our mailing list at benzofree.org slash subscribe. And one last thing, the Benzo Free Podcast is for informational purposes only and should never be considered medical advice. If you're listening to this podcast on one of our providers, please leave feedback on that carrier. This does help new listeners find us. Okay, let's move on to our Benzo story. Today's story is from Sarah in San Diego, California. Sarah has a unique situation and a question about her taper, and I thought it was a perfect story to share today with our feature topic. Sarah writes, Hi, Dee. I am so grateful to have someone knowledgeable to talk about this. Thank you. I was first prescribed clonopin about 17 years ago when my son was diagnosed with special needs, and I was so anxious I could not sleep or eat. Anyway, the next five years after that, I took it rarely, maybe four to five times a year. Then about 12 years ago, a doctor told me it was good as a mood stabilizer. I used to have a lot of mood swings. But I still took it as needed, maybe two to three times per week. At times I took very little, sometimes quarter milligram, sometimes half of a quarter. Yep, I figured out how to break those little half pills. I used to be very sensitive to it, and doctors were happy that in all these years, I had never exhibited tolerance. Through the years, I had many jobs and often left them abruptly due to my anxiety. Sometimes I had taken clonopin a couple days before I left, so I was never quite sure about the role clonopin played on those stress leaves. This past year, I have been on it quite consistently. I have also been the most consistent in holding a stressful job. I have probably taken it daily the last 12 months, maybe skipping one to two days max here and there. And yes, at days two to three, I have had hard time sleeping and felt even more anxious. 
I have probably not taken it one to two days per month this past year. And the PRN dose that I've needed did increase this year. Often, I would take 0.5 milligrams two times a day, sometimes 0.75 one time per day. Anyway, it, it's all so confusing. Then, if I couldn't sleep, I would add Ambien to the mix. I have a prescription for Ambien PRN as well, and take that sometimes two times per month, sometimes two times per week. I found a doctor that knows about the Ashton Manual. However, because I was engaged when I met him about four months ago, he suggested I wait until after my wedding to taper. Anyway, this brings us to the more recent present. I got married at the end of September. I wanted to start getting ready to taper, but then I was stumped. I can't find any information on what dose to take if the dose I was on before varied all the time. I first guessed and started taking 0.5 milligrams daily, but that was way too little. I, I could tell because I got really depressed, anxious, and was afraid to lose my job. I really can't lose my job. I called the doc. He told me to increase it, so I'm now at 0.625. I am very anxious, hard to sleep, etc., but I've been at 0.625 for about 10 days, and it's tolerable. I don't yet have any of the intense other symptoms I've heard about. Hopefully, I won't get them, but my symptoms are increasing. If I called the doctor, he would tell me to increase my dosage again until I don't feel symptoms. And believe me, it's tempting. But I'm hoping I don't have to increase a dosage at this point. So I will be meeting with the doctor soon. On the phone, he told me that taking Clonopin PRN is a very bad idea. I am not quite sure what to believe. It seems the doctors are guessing too. So anyway, now I'm taking it regularly. Just FYI, I hate taking it regularly. I used to not take it for social occasions or to do yoga or to do my songwriting, and now I feel a little out of it all the time. Creativity, gone. I guess this is the way to taper and to eventually quit taking it once and for all, but I just wanted to find out if you had heard otherwise or had heard of a similar situation. My guess is there are tons of people taking it PRN, and maybe Ashton mentioned a method for them to taper. I believe my doctor wants me to be on a stable dose, switch me to volume, and then start the taper. I feel like I'm being a guinea pig with no real protocol to follow. The main thing is that I have to keep my job. If it comes down to either losing my job or going back on clonopin as needed, I will probably go back on the clonopin. Scary. Anyway, thanks for reading this, Sarah. Thanks, Sarah. I'm so glad you shared your story with. And first of all, congratulations on your wedding. That's wonderful news. I'm so happy for you. And I'm so sorry for all the pressures you've had on your life. I, I know it can seem insurmountable at times. Your tapering situation is complex, I will admit. So much so that I've added it to our Q&A in our feature on tapering. So I won't respond to that question right here. Still, confusion of how to go about this is common, which is the primary reason I'm doing this feature today and this podcast as a whole. I wrote my book on benzos in a Q&A style primarily because that is what we have. 
questions. When you find yourself on benzos, you have hundreds, maybe thousands of questions and very few answers. I know that was my experience, and I hear that from so many of you too. The pressures you have on your life make everything harder, and the complications this medication has brought with it has only added to it. But I know you'll get through this. Thanks for trusting me with your story, and please keep in touch and take care. And don't forget, we still need stories. I only have a few in the queue right now, and I can always use more. Just go to our feedback form at benzofree.org feedback to share your story or send an email to podcast at benzofree.org. Now let's move on to our feature. Today, our feature topic is how to taper from benzos. This is part two of our two-part series on tapering. If you haven't listened to part one, you might want to go back and listen to episode 41 first. It, it might make more sense <laughs> that way. And as many of you know, I can't really advise you on how to taper from any drug or even to taper or even to withdraw. And even though I mentioned this in part one, I'll say it here one more time. I am not a medical professional and that this is not medical advice. It is for informational purposes only. I know I just said that, but <laughs> I can't help myself sometimes. I encourage you that if you choose to taper from benzos, work with your doctor. If you don't have a doctor who will work with you, as many of you have told me, then try and find one who can. One who will listen, even if he or she is not benzo-wise, you still need someone who will work with you. Trust me, this process is much easier if you have a medical professional with you on your team. Now, before we get back to our eight sections on tapering, I do want to share one comment from a listener up front today because she pointed out an oversight I made in part one. This is from Sarah in Forest Grove, Pennsylvania. No, not the Sarah who shared her story just a few minutes ago. That's Sarah with an H. <laughs> we'll get to her question at the end of the feature in our Q&A. This is from another Sarah, no H in her name. And she had a wonderful comment I really wanted to share up front with you today. Sarah writes, I just wanted to add one suggestion. Dry micro taper. I have been following Ashton since May. Clonopin, 1 milligram crossover to Valium. Have gotten down to 5 milligrams Valium and was feeling pretty lousy. I had a conversation with another member of Facebook Benzo Support, and he suggested a dry micro taper using a jewelry scale, cheap on Amazon, and reducing by 0.001 to 0.003 grams per day. I use a nail file to reduce, then weigh. Well, it's great. Been doing this for two weeks now and symptoms are very minor. He suggested that at that rate, your body barely misses it. And it's true. Believe me, not totally gone, but a whole lot better than larger cuts every week to two weeks. Anyway, thought I would add this suggestion as I have seen it work great for a few people. I really want to thank Sarah for this comment. I, I did plan on adding dry micro tapering to the method section in last week's podcast, and I forgot. <laughs> no other excuse. I just forgot to put it in the script and didn't catch it when I recorded it or edited it. That's my fault. So thank you, Sarah, for sharing that here and reminding me. Sarah is correct. 
many people I know have had success with a dry micro taper. This is helpful especially with more potent benzos like Xanax and Clonopin if you choose not to substitute, but also for less potent ones like Valium. Some people use a nail file, others a razor, and many use a jewelry scale which can be found, like she mentioned, on Amazon, if you want to get one to help you measure. The trick is to cut off very thin shavings, almost of a powder, and then weigh the pills to make sure you're getting exact doses. As Sarah said, many people have found that this method of taper has helped them manage their symptoms, especially in between doses. Still, I have seen others who have said that since diazepam has such a long half-life, micro-tapering is not needed and shouldn't really affect your symptomology. I say, do what works for you. If you have found that micro-tapering has helped you ease your symptoms during your taper, then I think it's a grand idea. <laughs> we are all different, and each of us will need different tools and techniques to help us through. So thanks, Sarah. That was a great addition to our feature. And now on to our regularly scheduled programming. Another one of those phrases that dates me, doesn't it, I guess? <laughs> it seems like there are more and more of those every year, and I thought I was getting younger. <laughs> I guess I'm not. Our feature on tapering is broken down into eight sections. Last week we covered one, the decision, two, the method, three, the schedule, and four, the preparation. Today we will address five complications, six, the symptoms, seven, the final dose, and eight, the other side. And we will follow that up with a short Q&A section, basically our mailbag just moved to the end of our feature. Please remember that this is still basically an overview and that there is a lot more information available on the web. Please do not attempt to taper from benzos if you haven't read the Ashton Manual. And as I mentioned last week, it won't hurt to stop by Benzo Buddies and read their information too. Don't forget the Ashton Manual does have several tapering schedules in the manual itself, which can be a lot of help. Okay, that being said, let's pick up where we left off last week. Number five, complications. There are many complications that may come along during your taper. Symptoms are probably the biggest ones, but there are others. Updosing, medical procedures, medications, lifestyle, and other factors that can affect your taper. Let's take a look at a few of these. One of the difficult quandaries many of us face is the question of updosing. Updosing is a term meaning increasing your dosage, even if it's just temporary during your taper. Updosing is not recommended by most experts, and, and many agree that it should be avoided as much as possible. Evidence shows that people who raised their dosage during taper had a more difficult time withdrawing once they decided to start again. The general rule is to go down in dose or stay put, but don't updose unless your symptoms are unbearable or life-threatening. Now, both updosing and reinstating once you are benzo-free can trigger a process called kindling. Kindling is still somewhat of a mystery, but we know it happens. Some, some people have gone back on benzos for some reason or another once they become benzo-free or updosed significantly. And when they decide to withdraw again, it's often harder than it was the first time. Still, this doesn't mean that you can't successfully taper anyway. It just might be a little harder. 
please speak with your doctor if you feel the need to updose to handle your symptoms. And make sure you're educated and know what you're doing before you make the decision. Another possible complication are medical procedures. Life continues, even when we're going through benzo withdrawal. People break bones, get ill, even have cancer while going through benzo withdrawal. And this complicates your taper. This is when, more than almost any other time, flexibility is key. You may even have to stop your taper for a while, months perhaps. Again, there is no one-size-fits-all. One of the factors that can come along with a medical procedure is the common use of benzodiazepines in the procedure itself. Benzos are commonly given for a variety of medical procedures, including outpatient tests, biopsies, preventative care, and with other more serious surgeries and treatments. Midazolam, Versed, is a very common benzo in minor surgical procedures. It has a very short half-life, only about one to six hours, which makes it quite effective for this situation. But others like Valium and some other benzodiazepines have been used as well, often as a precursor to a surgical procedure, to ease the anxiety of the upcoming event. Now, the fear that we have about taking this one-off benzo during our taper or even after, for that matter, is, is very common. It's one I still have somewhat today. Will this be a setback in my taper or recovery? Will I have to start all over again? Let's check back with Ashton on this one. Ashton says, Benzodiazepines are of value as pre-medication before major operations and for sedation and amnesia during minor medical procedures. Yet many ex-users are terrified that if they are given a benzodiazepine for these purposes, they will become dependent all over again. They can be reassured. A single dose of a benzodiazepine given for an operation does not bring back the addiction, although the stress of an operation may reawaken the anxiety symptoms experienced during benzodiazepine withdrawal. Symptoms reported under these circumstances have usually been the result of fear. Now, I have to admit that even with Ashton's reassurances that we just heard, I, I still wonder and would prefer to have procedures without benzos if I can. But if I needed to, I'd take one and trust that it would not set me back. This, this is a decision you have to make again with your doctor like so many others but it's information I thought you might want to know. Other medications can also cause issues during your taper and withdrawal. We, we've talked about many of these on the podcast before, and we're not going to go into all of them here. Still, I do want to mention one, and that's quinolones, or the full name, fluoroquinolones. Quinolones affect the same GABA receptors as benzodiazepines, and they can intensify withdrawal symptoms. They go by the common brand names of Avalox, Cipro, Factive, and Leviquin. Even without the complications of benzo use and withdrawal, this class of antibiotics is recommended only in very limited cases. Unfortunately, I didn't remember the warning in the Ashton Manual before a urologist prescribed me Cipro for misdiagnosed prostatitis during my taper. Yes, another one of those mistakes, <laughs> which very well may have contributed to my protracted withdrawal. 
I'll probably never know. There are other medications of concern, but we've discussed them in other podcasts, and we'll return to the subject again in a future episode. But for now, let's move on to lifestyle. Diet, exercise, vitamins and supplements, stress, and so many other lifestyle factors affect our taper and the success of our taper. Eating a healthy diet can be difficult during your taper. Digestive symptoms can severely limit some people's choices. Exercise can also be difficult. Some people can't even leave their homes for days at a time. And exercise can be too painful. Vitamins and supplements have helped some people, but have made other symptoms worse. And stress and anxiety is always a factor and should be reduced as much as possible in severe states of withdrawal. The main thing here to remember with lifestyle is to pay attention to diet, exercise, and stress, and anything else you put in your body during your taper. We can become extremely sensitive to external stimuli during this time, and it's important to watch and try and pay attention to what is causing complications. And there are a few other factors that could complicate your withdrawal. One factor that I really would like to mention here that can affect your taper is pregnancy. Unfortunately, benzos and pregnancy don't mix well. But if you find yourself pregnant and on a long-term benzo, don't panic. There are choices and doctors who can work with you and help you manage your concerns. But I do feel I need to let you know the risks. Benzodiazepines are a class D teratogen. A teratogen is an agent that can cause a birth defect. A class D teratogen is one in which positive evidence of fetal risk has been identified. Still, in some cases, the benefits may warrant continued use of the drug during pregnancy despite possible risks to the fetus. You see, the concern is this. Benzodiazepines taken during pregnancy cross the placental barrier and can affect the growth and development of the baby. But withdrawal from benzos can also aggravate the pregnancy. Women who find themselves already on long-term benzos and pregnant can face a difficult dilemma. According to an article in the NHS Grampian, a regional health board of NHS Scotland, they advise the following. Sudden cessation of benzodiazepine use during pregnancy is potentially hazardous for both mother and fetus, including the risk of convulsions. Benzodiazepines may cause long-lasting and difficult-to-control withdrawal symptoms in the neonate, so any reduction in the level of use is to be encouraged. Now, in these situations, more than any other, it's vital to work with your doctor for both the health of the mother and the baby. Please know that many women have gone before and actually had a successful pregnancy and a healthy child while on long-term benzos. The trick here is to work with your obstetrician and find the best solution to manage both your health and that of the child during this time. Withdrawal can also be more difficult in the elderly, but they can also show some of the greatest benefits from a successful withdrawal. And a slow taper has been shown to be the most effective with them, as with other ages. And there are other factors that can complicate a taper 
And we could go on and on talking about those for another hour or two, but we need to move forward and continue on with this topic. So let's move on to symptoms and take a look at those. Number six, the symptoms. Symptomology during taper, much like during the entire withdrawal period, differs significantly for every person. Some say that they experienced their worst symptoms during their taper. And after they jumped, things got much easier. While others say the really hard times didn't even start until they took their last dose and started acute withdrawal. It depends on so many different factors, many of which we are still uncovering. During one's taper, symptoms can often become a bellwether of their taper. And and if the person is going too fast or too slow, they can tell based on their symptomology. It just makes sense that if your symptoms increase too much and become more than you can manage at that time, that slowing down your taper rate or even pausing for a while at one stage can help out. Or if you aren't experiencing any symptoms at all and want to increase your pace a bit, you can try that out too. But try and be careful if you do this. Symptoms can sneak up on you. And it's important to pay attention so you can adjust if they increase in severity. Since we have provided a 14-part series on symptoms on this podcast with the final installment coming very soon, I'm not going to go into a lot of detail on symptomology here. Please check out one of the previous episodes which focuses on the various symptoms of concern. Just remember that symptoms are just that, symptoms. Rarely are they a sign of anything wrong other than your body healing from benzos. Still, if you are worried that a symptom might be something more serious, please get it checked out. If nothing else, it might ease your mind, ease your anxiety, and thusly ease the severity of your symptoms. Number seven, the final dose. I'd like to open this section with a question from a listener. This is from Heather in Minnesota. This is just part of her email. I will share the rest of her story in a later episode. Heather writes, I know everyone is different, but is there any data or statistics on what dose people try to jump off? I've heard 0.5 milligrams, but wonder if some people go lower. This is one of the questions I received which triggered this two-part series on tapering. Thanks for the question, Heather. Knowing when to take your last dose is a question I received more than a few times. A lot of this depends on your taper. For me, I thought I couldn't really cut my pill of clonopin any smaller than 0.25 milligrams since the pills only came in 0.5 milligram sizes and I had a pill cutter where I could cut it in half. Thus, I jumped from 0.25 milligrams of clonazepam, equivalent to 5 milligrams of diazepam, and that's a big jump at the end. Obviously, I was wrong about not being able to go slower. I could have dry micro-tapered, as we mentioned earlier, or titrated with liquid, but I thought I'd be fine jumping from 0.25. Not my best decision, <laughs> not even close. <laughs> The decision as to when to take your last dose is up to you. Looking at the last dose as an equivalent dose of diazepam, I know people who have jumped from 1 milligram of diazepam, and some who have jumped from 0.1 milligrams of diazepam or lower. This, again, is a decision for you and your doctor. <laughs> 
What, what are your symptoms like at your current dose? Do you feel confident enough to jump here? Or would it be better to go down a bit lower before you do? For me, I think slower is better, but that's hindsight speaking. I understand the push to finally be benzo-free and not wanting to delay it any longer. And Ashton actually agrees with that philosophy. Let's, let's hear what she has to say on this. The 1 milligram or 0.5 milligram diazepam per day, which you are taking at the end of your schedule, is having little effect apart from keeping the dependence going. Do not be tempted to spin out the withdrawal to a ridiculously slow rate towards the end, such as 0.25 milligram each month. Take the plunge when you reach 0.5 milligrams daily. Full recovery cannot begin until you have got off your tablets completely. Well, there's your advice from Ashton herself. At some point, you have to jump and take your last dose, and then the medication is gone and your body can really start to heal. And after you took that last dose, do everything you can to keep it that way. Try not to reinstate if you can help it, or you might face kindling as we spoke about earlier. And it can be even harder to withdraw the next time around. And another thing some people do is they carry around a just-in-case dose or a rescue pill with them in case they need it. Ashton mentions this in her manual, too. If, if these pills are just for comfort and never taken, then I guess there's no harm. But just by having them with you, they may be too tempting during a difficult day not to take them. And then you can wind up back where you started again. I'm not a huge fan of rescue pills or just-in-case doses, but again, that's just my opinion. Do what works for you and what makes the most sense for your taper. The last dose decision can be a very difficult one to make, and no one should pressure you into making it. But once you've made the decision, you can finally say you are benzo-free. 8. The Other Side Being benzo-free is pretty amazing. But, and I wish I didn't have to say this, for many of us, it's not the end of the symptoms. Acute withdrawal starts the day you take your last dose of benzodiazepine, or non-benzodiazepine if that's a drug you were taking. And that stage can last up to 18 months. Now, that doesn't mean that acute withdrawal lasts 18 months. It just means that if you're in the 10 to 15% group who still have symptoms after 18 months, that you are now in the next stage, protracted withdrawal. 18 months is the standard time frame most use for the start of protracted withdrawal and the end of acute withdrawal. Acute withdrawal is called that for a reason. It can be difficult. I wish I could give you only good news here, but that wouldn't be honest, and I promised up front I would always be honest with you. For some, things start to get better in acute withdrawal. They get more windows, and they become fully healed, and that is awesome for them. I am really happy for them. I, I mean that. I, I really do. <laughs> for the rest of us, acute withdrawal can become more difficult. It it can be hard. It can be really hard. 
But that doesn't mean it isn't manageable. Not by a long shot. And for most people, that stage of acute only lasts three, six, nine months or so. I think one of the reasons that acute is harder for many people is expectations. We are now benzo-free, so we should be back to normal, right? (laughs) And that expectation makes our ongoing symptoms that much harder to manage. But still, it's just one more step to being healed, and it's temporary, and you will get through it. In fact, if you are educated on benzos, have some good tools for managing your fear and anxiety ready at hand, and have a good support system, have educated yourself, have a great team by your side, it can actually be easy. But remember this, when your symptoms do start to ease and you get more windows, and you start to feel more human again and get out and see the world and socialize and return to work and find new love and excitement and adventure and all that great stuff, life can be pretty damn good. No, life can even be better than it was before. I still have symptoms, and yet, in many ways, I'm better than I was during or even before I took benzos. And many of the people who I've spoken to who successfully withdrew have said the same things. There is a rainbow on the other side, and it is pretty damn cool. You can do this. I know you can. And as Ashton mentioned a long time ago, expectations of the horrors of benzo withdrawal are often far worse than the actual experiences for most people. Find a way to manage your fear. Find a way to bring down your anxiety. And you're going to get through this just fine. Now let's take a look at a special tapering version of our mailbag, our Q&A, to close out the feature. I have two questions and a comment to close this section out. So let's take a look at those right now. Our first question is from Christina in Harford County, Maryland. Christina writes, I'm reading your method to try and understand how to come off of clonazepam. I'm only on 0.5 milligrams in the morning. I was taking one in the morning and one at night. However, I stopped the night dose a few months ago. I've had some withdrawal symptoms and still do, but I'm so scared to stop the morning dose. I was doctor prescribed this medication for anxiety, and when I recently told my doctor I was done taking it, he wasn't much help. I'm trying to understand the tapering schedule. However, my dose is not one of the ones there. Can you please help? I'm going to my primary care doctor for her help as well, but I would really like to use your tapering method. Well, thank you, Christina. I really appreciate your question. When when I wrote back to Christina, I told her first off, I wouldn't follow my method if I was her. I made a lot of mistakes. And I'm still in protracted withdrawal five years out, so I don't know that I'm the example. Now, that may have happened anyway, despite my mistakes, but it also might be due to my method of taper. Trust me, you can do a lot better with your taper than I did with mine. Learn from my mistakes as well as the successes of those who preceded you. Perhaps a 10-2 rule is a good place to start, but then maybe you might need to go slower or even a little faster 
if it works for you. Trying to find the right schedule specific to your drug and dosage in the Ashton Manual can be difficult. Ashton couldn't provide a schedule for every situation and every drug. It would have been a hundred pages long. That's why I like the 10-2 rule of a 10% reduction of current dose every one to two weeks as a good basis, something to start from. It fits every situation and every dose of every different type of benzo, and that's the beauty of it. Or, or at least I thought it fit every situation until I got the next email. The next question is from Sarah in San Diego, California. Yes, that's Sarah with the H, <laughs> the same one we heard the story from earlier in the episode. I promised I would come back to her question about tapering, and here I am. And I must admit, this one really stumped me. Let me share her initial short email before she sent her story so we can hear her question about tapering. Sarah writes, I've been taking clonopin for at least 12 years at various doses as needed for anxiety. Some days I wouldn't take it at all. And some days I would take 0.5 to 1 milligram. Sometimes I would go for 3 or 4 days without it. More recently, my dose ranges from 0 to 1.5 milligrams per day. So my question is, how do I know at what dosage to start my taper? I've never taken a regular dose. I'll write again soon, I promise, but would love to know the answer to my above question. Thanks, Sarah. This is a good one, and I admitted to Sarah outright that I didn't really know what to tell her initially. And I do have to be careful, for as I mentioned once or twice, maybe, <laughs> that I can't advise anyone on how to taper. But I can share information and discuss the topic with you. Here's the dilemma. If I was the one who had been taking a benzo on occasion over several years, I'd have the following questions. First off, am I even dependent? That's the first thing I would want to know. If I can go three to four days without a dose and there are no complications, then it's possible I'm not even dependent. Still, if I was taking clonopin, the half-life of clonopin is 18 to 50 hours, a moderate length half-life as far as benzos go. So it is possible I'm just not experiencing the symptoms yet between doses. Unfortunately, this was not the case with Sarah. She was experiencing some interdose withdrawal already. So that leaves us with the question of how to taper. And this question, do I start taking a dose regularly? And if I do, and I wasn't dependent before, will I become dependent now? Will I make the situation worse? And if I don't start taking a dose regularly, do I just keep taking it occasionally and reduce that dose over time? Well, I thought I'd do some research, which turned up diddly. <laughs> I couldn't find much. I, I just couldn't find much on that specific topic, which kind of surprised me. Thus, I asked a few people I know in the benzo community, including a benzo-wise medical professional. I asked if there was a hypothetical situation such as this with a patient of theirs, what might that person say? And it stumped this person for a few minutes. You see, most of us are told that to become dependent, you need to have taken the drug for two to four weeks or longer continuously and not PRN, as Sarah had done. But that begs the question, does that mean that you cannot become dependent by taking it, PRN, or occasionally? 
I'm guessing you still can. It just might not be as common. The benzo community is not an exact science. We're, we're still figuring this stuff out as we go along. In the end, if it was me, I believe I would start taking a regular dose, but at the lowest level I could, and still manage my symptoms and my job. And then I would slowly taper from there with probably the 10-2 rule as a start, perhaps via substitution, liquid taper, or even micro-tapering if I needed to, and left myself the flexibility to stop whenever I needed. But that's just what I would do. It doesn't mean it's right. And of course, it is not medical or any other kind of advice. Did, did I say that already? <laughs> if anyone has any information to help shine a light on this question, please let me know. Especially if you know of any professional articles or research studies which help provide a more clear answer. Thanks, Sarah, for the question and for the story. And our final comment is from Jeff in Chicago, Illinois. Jeff has a differing opinion on tapering. I've said a few times in this podcast that I have yet to talk with someone who tapered rapidly and was glad they did. Based off of Jeff's email, perhaps Jeff is the exception. Jeff writes, I'd like to offer some input on the podcast on tapering. My position on this goes somewhat against the grain, so I guess I'm presenting it as a sort of alternative view. I remember when I entered into a state of severe tolerance withdrawal. It was in early 2012, but I had no idea what it was, and I continued to languish in that state for five more years. In 2017, I finally did massive research on benzos and decided to taper off. I was out of my mind with extreme anxiety, so before I began my taper, I tried updosing to see if I could stabilize. I was on 2 milligrams of Xanax and I tried going as high as 3.5 milligrams, but I got no response to it at all. The medication had completely lost its effectiveness, probably years before that time. When I started tapering, I experimented by making different sized cuts some very slight and some very large. I literally felt the same regardless of how much of a cut I made. I really couldn't even tell that I was tapering. I had been so sick for so long that the taper didn't really make me feel any worse. In fact, I actually felt a little better because at the time, I was convinced that all I needed to do was to get off the drug and I'd recover quickly. So, I was highly motivated to get off of it. I really could not see any reason to do a slow taper. I thought it would only prolong my recovery. I certainly could not have done a symptom-guided taper. My doctor actually slowed me down. He crossed me over to Librium, and my taper was finished in a total of four months. Now, you know that I'm doing very poorly. I am 28 months off and barely functioning, so... So a strong argument can be made that I should have done a much slower taper. But it's also possible that with a slow taper, my withdrawal experience would have been just as severe and drawn out over an even longer time. I have a strong hunch that my severe withdrawal is due to the fact that I took Xanax daily for 30 years and has little or nothing to do with my taper. What I do know is I followed my instincts at the time. Something told me to get off the drug as quickly as I was able, 
and that's what I did. I've heard that the best taper is the one that works. In other words, if you can get off the drug and stay off, then your taper worked. It's just so complex. I'm not sure if you will want to offer up this point of view on your podcast. I totally understand if you choose not to. But I do believe that if someone feels inclined to attempt a taper that isn't particularly slow, they should go for it. If they can't handle it, they can always slow down. Well, thanks, Jeff. I really appreciate the alternate look at tapering, and I thank you for sharing that with us. I understand where you're coming from, and even follow your logic. One thing I refuse to do on this podcast is suppress information. Jeff has a different opinion on tapering, and I believe you have the right to hear it. Here's the info. First off, and you've heard it a hundred times on the podcast, but everyone is different, just as Jeff said. It is possible that a rapid taper was the best choice for Jeff. I can't argue that because we don't know. But that being said, I can tell you this. Most medical experts who have spent time with benzo patients and withdrawal over a long period of time, meaning they've stuck around long enough to see how long and how difficult protracted withdrawal might be in some people, recommend a slow taper. Jeff has a good point that you can start off fast and slow down if you need to. And that may work for some. But it also can trigger a severe wave or even seizures and other severe complications in some. This may cause the person extreme distress or cause them to updose or worse. And going back to the previous dose may remedy the situation, but it also may not. Tapering is not a decision to be taken lightly. And that is one reason that many recommend a slow taper. We have lost people. Many people during withdrawal, who couldn't take it, who couldn't see their way through and struggled to find any hope in this process. It's really sad, but it's true. So tapering is something to take seriously and make the decision that's best for you. This is one of the reasons I recommend working with your doctor. You need solid medical support during this time because it can be difficult. But it's also one of the reasons that I stand by slow tapering because we don't know who those people are going to be. And I'd rather you slowly taper, manage the symptoms as they come, than jumping in and going too quickly and having a bad reaction. I feel that a slow taper allows the body to heal as it is tapering down instead of trying to catch up all at once. And the theory that it just drags out the suffering doesn't quite fit with what I've experienced and seen in so many people I've talked with. I can't count the number of people who have CT'd or rapid detoxed and have shared with me how they strongly regret that decision. But on this podcast, when we need an expert opinion, I am not the one who should respond. So let's end this Q&A section with a few quotes from Professor Ashton. Ashton said the following in her manual. At first, the withdrawal was a process of mutual trial and sometimes error. But through this experience, some general principles of withdrawal, what works best for most people, emerged. These general principles are derived from the 300 who attended the clinic up till 1994 
and have been confirmed over succeeding years by hundreds more benzodiazepine users with whom I have been involved. There is absolutely no doubt that anyone withdrawing from long-term benzodiazepines must reduce the dosage slowly. Abrupt or over-rapid withdrawal, especially from high dosage, can give rise to severe symptoms, convulsions, psychotic reactions, acute anxiety states, and may increase the risk of protracted withdrawal symptoms. Professor Ashton spent many years working with benzo patients and saw a lot, and I believe that she knows what she's talking about. Jeff is still experiencing ongoing withdrawal complications, as he mentioned. Now, this may have happened regardless of how he tapered, or it may have been influenced by his rapid withdrawal. The truth is, we don't know. I understand where Jeff is coming from, and I respect his opinion, and he has every right to it. But as for my opinion, I'd rather be safe than sorry, and stick with the expert's opinion on the matter. Thanks, Jeff, for the email. It was a great topic to discuss. And that wraps up our two-part feature on tapering. Yay! <laughs> I hope you enjoyed it. I want to thank the listeners who suggested this topic and who provided some of the questions and content within it. Thank you so much for your help. Take care, and if you hang with us for just 30 seconds for our disclaimer, we'll move on to our moment of peace and our closing. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be considered medical advice in any way. The host of this podcast is not a medical professional, nor is he engaged in rendering medical, health, or psychological advice, nor any other kind of personal professional services. The views and opinions expressed by our listeners and interview guests on this podcast, whether read from textual submissions or presented in their own voice, do not necessarily reflect those of the Benzofree podcast or of its host. Withdrawal tapering or any other change in dosage of benzodiazepines, non-benzodiazepines, or any other prescription drugs should only be done under the direct supervision of a licensed physician. Our full disclaimer can be viewed on our website at benzofree.org slash disclaimer. And that brings us to our closing, our moment of peace. It's just one minute, and it's an opportunity to quiet your mind a bit before you return to the chaos of the real world. The way this works is that I will give you a brief introduction, perhaps, a suggestion of something to focus on. Then I will play a soft bell which will indicate the start of the one minute. This will be followed by another soft bell which will indicate the end of the one minute. And that will be the end of the episode. Feel free to continue to meditate if you choose. If not, continue on with your day. And please remember that you should only do this if you are in a safe place, where you can close your eyes, relax, and let the world pass by without you for a minute. Today we are going to return to a very basic meditation, one we've done once or twice before. This is the So Hum Meditation. It's one of my favorites because it's so simple. On your in-breath, say to yourself, so. And on the out-breath, say hum. That's it. That's all there is to it. So without delay, let's get started. Close your eyes and relax. Take a deep breath in 
hold it for a second and let it out slowly. Let's do that again. Take a deep breath in. Hold it for a second and let it out slowly along with all the stress of the day. One more time. Take a deep breath in. Hold it for a second. Then let the breath out slowly, relaxing your entire body. Now just breathe slowly and naturally. And repeat the mantra to yourself. So hum. If your mind wanders, which it will do, just gently bring it back to your mantra. No judgment whatsoever. Continue to do this for one minute. Next episode is episode 43, and it will be released next Wednesday. Thank you again for joining me today, and please, let me know how we did. Keep calm, taper slowly, and take care of yourself. I'll see you next time.